standing and pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, on this day we acknowledge, proclaim, and celebrate your risen victory. You have conquered and trampled down every enemy of God, trampling down death by death, giving life to those who are in the tomb, and Lord, making your believers to be triumph, triumphing conquerors with you. Lord, grant me the preacher of your word this morning, boldness to proclaim your resurrection victory, and open our hearts to the truth of God's word, Lord. If Jesus is alive, nothing else matters. Thank you for that good news, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And a lot of us really believe that this morning. And yet in spite of this amazing declaration, we don't seem to have the same reaction to the news as the two Marys in the gospel text from Matthew we just heard read did. Now, I know you say that it's because you've heard this story before, and it has been told quite a few times since those women were charged with being the first preachers of the resurrection. But it is such earth-shattering news, and it being such earth-shattering news, I want to know just why we keep acting like everything is normal. Why do we act like everything is normal if Jesus is raised from the dead? Now, here's what I want to do this morning. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. Many of us here are seriously sleep-deprived. I am one of those people. I've lost my capacity for short-term memory at this point. I'm so, uh, I have got past the point where I'm yawning all the time to the point where I'm just really mellow and chill. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that that's a whole part of the, you know, staying up late, all the incense, you might smell it in the air. It was some great incense, man. And, uh, but, but you just get to that point where the spirit can work in that as well. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. I have to keep this simple because I'm not sure that I can have lucid communication at this point. So here's what I want, to hear, want you to hear. First of all, really, really dead Jesus became really, really alive Jesus. Point number one. And then I want to give you two reasons why that matters to you in your pew right now. So other than the fact that we have all heard this story before, why don't we have that potent cocktail of fear and joy coursing through our veins that those women disciples had? Well, I think it's because we don't realize what the tomb, that tomb, meant to them. For us, we get, we get to dress it up and turn it into something like a chrysalis. You know, like in your third grade science teacher's class. A chrysalis, you sat there all, whatever it was, uh, spring or, you know, late winter into spring, waiting for that ugly little chrysalis to do something, and all of a sudden, wham, a beautiful monarch butterfly pops out. And that's how we see this thing. It's really just the promise of better things to come. And by the way, if I do hear the resurrection compared to a butterfly one more time on an Easter Sunday, I will not be responsible for my actions. <laughs> it's like we expect Jesus to come out of the tomb and flutter away. No, the tomb to them was not a promise of something wonderful. It was unrelieved, unmitigated disaster. And when we encounter the risen Christ in the text, we don't have to be told like these women, do not be afraid, because we already weren't afraid, thank you very much. 
In fact, we weren't even startled. And not because we have heard that story before, but because we just don't realize how really and truly dead Jesus had been up to that point. Like I said last night at the vigil, Jesus was dead dead. He was not Princess Bride mostly dead. He was dead. We aren't inclined to throw ourselves at his feet and worship because we have forgotten that this man standing here smiling at us as if he might erupt with all the laughter of heaven at the slightest provocation had been a corpse just a few minutes before. That's right, Jesus was a corpse. He was a dead body. We aren't totally shaking with fear and joy because we forget that. And for the contrast, just think back to the behavior of these women and the disciples prior to that first Easter Sunday morning. Brothers and sisters, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead was to those women the most unexpected occurrence ever. And it still remains the most unexpected occurrence in human history. You think that modern people are skeptical of the resurrection? Well, you just need to get in line because the very first skeptics were Jesus's own disciples. Nobody thought he was going to raise from the dead. Nobody expected this event, even though Jesus had repeatedly told him that he was going to rise again. It never seemed to strike the apostolic brain. I mean, right here in Matthew's gospel, just before Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the last week of his life, right before Palm Sunday, they're on the road going to Jerusalem for that last week of his life. This is what happens in Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Any questions? Okay, so what you're saying, Jesus, is we're going to go conquer the Romans now? No. No, no, no. I'm going to go. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again. Okay, so like the Roman thing, that's going to happen, right? They just never got it. These faithful women who arrive at the tomb aren't there to greet the newly risen Jesus, but the Scripture says to see the tomb. But the verb there actually isn't to see in that sense. It is to watch. In other words, they were there to keep watch, to keep vigil for the dead. They knew that death was final, and it certainly looked that way. On Good Friday and all day Saturday until sometime early on Sunday morning, Jesus was a dead man, really dead, brain dead, heart stopped, rigor mortis had set in. Everything you associate with a corpse, Jesus was a corpse. He was as dead as every one of us in this room is going to be one day. And if we are going to truly be filled with the shocking, fearful joy of the resurrection, we need to think about the reality of Christ's death. 
writing in the journal First Things some time ago, Russell E. Saltzman made this very point when he was saying what he hoped he would hear from a pulpit on Easter Sunday morning. He went out of his way to say he didn't want to hear about daffodils and butterflies. He says, what's more, I need to know that everything that was him died as well. The love he felt for his friends, for his mother, and all his brightest memories and his deepest regrets, all that died too. This is what death does if we are human. It is what death did to his humanity. It strips us of everything. In the particular method of his death, something else was taken as well. His preaching, his manner of living, his ideas about the reign of God, even his signs and healings and miracles, all were dead with him. They didn't account for anything because those very elements of his life had brought about the conditions that led to his execution. This is the final meaning of crucifixion, repudiation of a way of life so complete as to be a caution to anyone foolish enough to try it for themselves. Death by crucifixion as punishment for the life Jesus lived merits a warning. Do not try this at home. It can turn you into a corpse. Now, here's why the really dead Jesus being raised to be the really alive Jesus is critical for us sitting in this room this morning. Listen carefully. You see, we all want good things to happen to good people and bad things to happen to bad people. Every deep down inside wants good things to happen to good people and bad things to happen to bad people. We just, every child on a playground has that knowledge. The first thing a child learns to say after he or she learns to say mine is it's not fair. But brothers and sisters, that is not how our lives work out in our experience, is it? And it's not how the world we live in seems to work out either. In our world, saintly grandmothers who have served God, served the church, served neighbors, loved everybody, end up in Alzheimer's wards, not even knowing their own families, not even knowing their own names. They are left with the random neuron firings of a decaying brain, and they seem to have been stripped of even their very personhood. And you have to ask yourself, in what kind of universe would a loving God allow that to happen? In our world, 44 Coptic Christians, people who love Jesus. I know the Coptic Christian community. I know the community in D.C. These are some of the humblest, sweetest, most hospitable people you ever meet. Genuinely loving to everyone around them. They love Jesus so much. They go to church last Palm Sunday to worship their Lord Jesus, and they are literally blown to pieces by Islamic militants. Really, Jesus, is that how you reward your followers? In our world, Christians who have lived as demi, second-class citizens in the Middle East, for the last 1,000 years, it's not been an easy task. And yet they have borne witness for their faith for a millennium, eventually have had to flee genocide in the Middle East. And instead of lifting up their plight as the crime against humanity that it is, the Western Academy 
the elite media, the entertainment culture, and political establishment in the West ignores their plight or even demonstrates a sense of schadenfreude, of a grim, shameful joy at their condition. Oh, that could never happen. I've heard it from their lips. That finally, these Christians, now think about this. By the way, these are, well, this is how they're characterized. These Christians, these non-progressive, patriarchal, privileged Christians, privileged, they're demi. These Christians who are really the infectious agent that ruins everything we love about our elite secular culture, they're finally getting what they deserve. Is that just? And when they beg for asylum among us, they're turned back. Body of Christ on earth, persecuted church. Body of Christ, Christ himself in the flesh. There is no room for you in this end. Really, God? In our world, poor Christians who are among the most generous people give away resources that make a real difference in their lives. Poor Christians in this town give away their stuff to other people who they see in need, who give to the expansion of God's kingdom in such a way that it actually impacts the way they live. Some of these people giving away their stuff can't even get good health care. Some of these people in Winston-Salem giving away their stuff because they love Jesus live in dangerous places. Did you know there's dangerous places in Winston-Salem? But out of love for Christ, they give away their stuff. While at the same time, nominal, rich Christians might drop a 50 into the offering plate once a year because they couldn't imagine actually tithing because that might interrupt their Virgin Island vacation. Seriously, God, is that just? In our world, this is happening right now, a young Christian couple, a clergy couple, had to go to enormous lengths to conceive a precious child they wanted so much, only to have their four-month-old little boy develop an aggressive brain cancer that has, up to this point in every other case, proved to be 100% fatal by the, by the time the child would reach the 12th month. Why, God? In light of this, here is why, in light of this catalog of injustice, here is why the resurrection matters to every one of us in this room. Listen carefully. Write this on your heart. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is the only narrative that makes sense of this world. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is the only frame of reference that makes sense of the world that we live in right now. The only thing that makes sense of a world like this one is that the very best of us, the purest of us, the most loving of us, the one who identified himself as one who came among us to serve. This one, this perfect sacrifice, God allows to be stripped, beaten, and nailed to a tree 
to die of a combination of blood loss, suffocation, and exposure, while a carnival of hate revels at the foot of his cross. And here's why that makes sense of this world. This is the first reason that makes sense of this world. It is, uh, it is because, first of all, we serve a God who was willing to enter into human suffering. Jesus' suffering gives our suffering meaning. We heard it today in Colossians. Paul's talking to every baptized, born-again believer in the church in Colossae. He says, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you shall also appear with him in glory. Grandma, you've slipped away. You're not here I just see your body. Where are you? Honey, I am on deposit with Jesus. I've died already. I died in baptism. My life is hid with Christ and God. Don't worry, child. When Christ shall appear, I shall appear with him in glory. The death of Christ is the only thing that makes sense of our lives in this world. Only thing that makes sense of our suffering. You see, brothers and sisters... When someone comes to me, and this happens frequently, happens in my own family, it's happened with my own children. Someone comes to me with seething anger in their heart, and I understand it. I felt this way too, looking at the injustice we personally experienced, looking at the injustice of this world. We say, why would God let this happen? And we forget that God never intended for any of this to happen. That wasn't God's plan. It was a rebellious human couple. Thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> that said, no, thank you very much. We'd rather be our own personal God, our own personal Lord and Savior. We'll take care of it from here. And because of that, because of that rebellion and the sin that entered the world, God's perfect cosmos was cracked and evil entered in. But even now, when people come to me and I, you can't hear that when you're in a moment of suffering. Hey, it's not God's fault. We screwed it up. Thanks, Pastor. I feel so much better now. It's just not really pastorally sensitive. But there is something that maybe we need to do when we feel that way. You know, I, I've, had a, uh, I, I've had mixed feelings about in the Western church, we have the tradition of having uh, a crucifix. Now, most Protestants don't do that anymore, but in the Western church, we've had a tradition of having a crucifix where, you know, you actually have the body of Jesus on the cross in torment and suffering. But I think maybe there's a good reason for that. Because when I'm feeling like somehow life hasn't been fair to me, maybe I need to go, there's one up in the chapel upstairs in the chapel here in the church, and stand in front of that crucifix maybe, I don't, I don't know, for maybe 15 minutes and look at that body nailed up in pain on a tree and realize that God has entered into my suffering with me. The late C. Kilmer Myers used to tell the story of Emma. Emma was a survivor of the Holocaust and regularly, every day at 4 p.m., she would stand outside of his church on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and scream imprecations at Jesus. 
And finally, one day, Kim, as he was known, went down to the street and said to Emma, why don't you go in and tell him yourself? And so she went inside the church. And after about an hour, he, hit, he hadn't heard anything, and he was beginning to be concerned. And so he went into the nave and down the aisle, and there was Emma on her face, prostrate before the crucifix. And he touched her on the shoulder, and she looked up at him with tears in her eyes, and she said, after all, he was a Jew as well. Tim Keller says, when you suffer, you may be completely in the dark about the reason for your own suffering. It may seem as senseless to you as Jesus' suffering seemed to his disciples. But the cross tells you that the reason isn't. It tells you what the reason isn't. It can't be because God doesn't love you. It can't be that he has no plan for you. It can't be that he has abandoned you. Jesus was abandoned and paid for our sins so that God the Father would never abandon you. The cross proves that he loves you and understands what it means to suffer. It also demonstrates that God can be working in your life even when it seems like there is no rhyme or reason for what is happening. And that is the first reason why the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus matter to everyone in this room. And the second reason that this is the only narrative that makes sense of our lives is that this righteous man who was unjustly tried, tortured, and executed has been and is eternally vindicated by the living God. Because all that happened to Jesus, God says that this is not the end of the story. Instead, before daybreak, three days later, God raised this Jesus Christ from the dead, and he comes striding out into the world that rejected, tortured, and killed him, and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Amen. And now brothers and sisters, we have this promise. This is the promise. This Jesus who came striding out of the maw of death as the mighty victor and conqueror over the grave. This Jesus takes my dead, lifeless, sinful corpse and says, because I live, you will live also. And he takes me by the hand and he drags me from the grave and he says, come with me. Come with me. There is victory. There is glory. There is fulfillment. Everything you thought that the world could throw at you, all the suffering and injustice that you've seen, I've destroyed it. I took my cross. Just don't you give a, don't you give a carpenter some wood and some nails because he just might make something with it. I took my cross and I turned it into a weapon, and I beat death to death with it. And because you are in me, you have my victory. You're clothed in my radiant garment of resurrection glory. That's why the resurrection matters to you in this room right now. Look, brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, nothing else matters. And if Jesus Christ isn't risen from the dead, nothing else matters.
And you know what's really wonderful about this? You know what's really going to be exciting about this final consummation of this resurrection victory? You know what's really going to be glorious? Oh, you're never going to expect what I'm about to say next. We get to have ordinary life. What are you talking about, man? Well, our father who art in Manhattan, Tim Keller, (laughs) writes this. He says, if you can't dance and you long to dance, in the resurrection you will dance perfectly. I can't dance. (laughs) I think he was thinking about quadriplegics. It's just me. I can't do it. If you're lonely in the resurrection, you'll have perfect love. If you're empty in the resurrection, you will be fully satisfied. Ordinary life is what's going to be redeemed. There is nothing better than ordinary life except that it is always going away and falling apart. Ordinary life is food and work and chairs by the fire and hugs and dancing and mountains. This world. God loved it so much that he gave his only son so we and the rest of this ordinary world could be redeemed and made perfect. And that's what is in store for us. So live in the light of the resurrection and renewal of this world and of yourself in a glorious, never-ending Dance of grace. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Now go and live like that's true. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.